Welcome to Boiling Point. Australia's coastal waters harbour more than 8,000 shipwrecks, but only a quarter of those have been found. Our guest is a maritime archaeologist and will take us on a dive into her world. How is maritime archaeology different from the land-based version? How do you preserve a shipwreck and how do you handle it if you find human remains at the site? Listen to the story in just a moment. Welcome back to Boiling Point, the weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 FM. Tonight in the studio, it's your host and training, myself, Griff, and Inna. Hi. As well as Kat in the studio today. Hello. And our guest is Danielle Wilkinson, a senior maritime archaeologist from Heritage Victoria. Welcome to the show, Danielle. Thank you so much for having me. So, Danielle, can we start by you telling us a bit about maritime archaeology and how it's different from land-based archaeology? Sure. So it's probably best to start with what archaeology is. Um, archaeology is the study of people in the past through the sites and items that they leave behind. And maritime is used as a bit of an inaccurate just catch-all for any subdiscipline of that that's related to the water, whether it's in the ocean or rivers, um, or if it's focusing on a theme of human interaction with the water, like uh, maritime industry. Um, and it's different from land-based archaeology in a number of key ways. One is that land-based archaeology is usually um, on sites that have formed over time. So you have, you know, decades or centuries of occupation that build up uh, layers of, of evidence um, in a sort of stratigraphic format. Um, but in the ocean or in maritime archaeology, you're usually referring to sort of shipwrecks or aircraft wrecks which are from a single event. And it's, you know, most of the time a catastrophic event. Um, so we deal with these a bit like time capsules um, and sites are usually formed by what people leave behind. And on shipwrecks and aircraft wrecks, it's, it's the rubbish people leave behind, but it's also personal possessions. There's equipment on board. There might be um, materials and construction techniques, all sorts of things that you can learn from um, a site underwater that isn't necessarily preserved on land. And also the pre preservation of materials is very different too. So where, you know, ceramic and glass preserve very well on land. Underwater, you can actually have uh, a lot of delicate organic material like lace and fabrics preserved really well too. And then of course, there's the access differences where you kind of need to know how to dive to access a lot of the sites we study. So yeah, a few different ways that they're different there. Wow, that's really interesting. And could you tell us a bit about the work you're doing at these sites? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I guess different archaeologists have different motivations. Some will be looking at these sites as a, in a research kind of perspective, looking at, say, uh, construction materials, uh, where they've come from, what they're trading, how they wrecked, um, those kind of details to flesh out the, the history of the vessel. Um, my experience, though, comes from a sort of consulting and government side of things where it's looking at preserving those sites and site management and managing risks, uh, whether it's from development or from um, divers or bombs, uh, to try and help preserve those sites. Wow, that's really interesting. And with, I imagine there's really a very unique experience when you go down to these sites and you see something that's potentially hundreds of years old. What era are most of the sites from? Like, are the, most of the ones in Australia really old, or are most of them more common, like airplanes, or are some quite old? Uh, it goes back quite a way. We do have some uh, wrecks off the Western Australian coast from before Australia's colonisation, if you wow. like. Um, 
some of the Dutch um, East India Trading Company vessels. I think one of the earliest is Trial, which is, uh, oh, I'm going to get the date wrong now. It's 18, perhaps 14. Um, so quite early. Whoa. But of course, it also includes Indigenous um, vessels as well. Um, and there are some preserved examples of that from much earlier too. Um, yeah, all the way up to World War II. Um, historic shipwrecks are usually... Uh, have a 75 year rolling date so anything 75 years ago or earlier is considered an historic shipwreck so could you tell a little bit more about the indigenous sites yeah sure um it's not my specific area of expertise but it is something that's really getting a lot of focus and we're learning a lot about across australia at the moment um and it's it's uh looking at submerged sites and submerged landscapes because of course any impact in our waters such as you know offshore wind farms which is growing in Australia impacts landscapes that were above the water level 16,000 years ago so we're looking at areas of landscape that might contain Aboriginal sites and like I spoke earlier about the um, amazing capacity of organic preservation underwater we might have material there that we can't find on land and we're also learning a lot about you know um, the First Nations habitation of our coastlines um, and and you know their migration inland with rising sea levels so there's a lot of information to find out underwater but it hasn't been a huge area of focus yet um, and it's something we're sort of actively growing our knowledge about and developing expertise to to research and look at and to mitigate the impacts of um, activities offshore on those sites and landscapes. Do you have any specific examples for us? Like I find it a bit hard to imagine like what kind of sites, especially with like uh, the shipwrecks we talked before, we talked about before, it's kind of straightforward. Okay, you find a shipwreck. But with indigenous sites, what do you see underwater? It's a little bit, it's definitely different to shipwrecks. Um, underwater, you're looking more landforms where that might uh, be connected to um, oral histories and, and stories um, that they have uh, still in there that are still told through the generations. For example, I, I can't tell you the, the specific uh, place this comes from, but there there is a story in, in one sort of First Nations group about five watering holes. And they, they were very confused because only three are known now mm -hmm. until there was some research of the submerged landscape offshore, which found the other two watering holes under the, you know, un, under the ocean. Um, and that completed their story about the, the five watering holes. Um, and there has been research off uh, Western Australia, for example, um, looking at midden sites and potential areas where there might have been rock art. So it is kind of looking at landscapes that features underwater that may have been significant places when they were exposed, but also looking for the, the physical material of human occupation, if you like. So yeah, middens and tools, yeah, sites like that. Just to go back to in a broader topic, could you give us um, some examples on, or like what is like some crazy historical finds that you found while investigating the shipwrecks? Oh, that's a good question. It, what What's considered a crazy find to me is probably very different to what someone else might consider a <laughs> crazy But that's why we find. want to know what a cra what's a crazy find to you. That's the interesting part. <laughs> I can't think of a specific example. There's so many things that jump to mind. Um, a, a bit of a, a bit of a, 
out of the box examples when I used to work in the UK and they there have a very good understanding of their landscape offshore and areas that are very dense in like stone tools mm-hmm. um, from you know 55 to 60,000 years ago and there's one example where during dredging um, for aggregates they brought up this hand axe that was perfectly preserved like it hadn't even turned over underwater it didn't have any of that abrasion from sand or anything like that and it was a perfect example of this hand axe from fifty-five thousand years ago and just holding it in your hand you could kind of feel the the texture of the flint um and and the way it was held and the, the grooves and oh my god it was the most magical experience um holding something like that which is not from my area of expertise i'm typically a historic um, based archaeologist um, but that was quite magical and yeah underwater I just find diving sites I'm not a dive I'm not a very good diver I, I'm a very anxious diver I don't really like the the whole thing I get seasick but when you're on a shipwreck site underwater there's something about being in a foreign environment and you know seeing these timbers with burn marks from when the ship exploded um or seeing frames ripped apart or something like that that just is so evocative and just takes you straight back through history um, and in your mind you're kind of playing like a video of, of how this happened how the site formed this way through you know whatever catastrophic circumstance it was um and you know fuck finding broken ceramics and things because all personal items because I didn't have time to take that stuff off the wreck I find all that just so so emotive yeah I, I completely agree that just sounds so engrossing like being in underwater in like a time capsule would be so amazing but and now that you've told us about what you find at the sites how are the sites actually themselves found there's two main ways sites are found one is completely by accident by you know a diver or a fisherman who drags up a timber or something like that and it gets reported to us and then you have the uh the research journey of trying to figure out what that shipwreck is um but the reverse is where the research happens first and we know of or at least of hundreds and hundreds of shipwreck sites that are recorded in historic record like recorded in newspapers that we haven't found yet Um, And of course, I'm based in Victoria, unlike you guys, and there's 330 shipwrecks off our coast that we haven't found yet. Wow. So it might be that a researcher finds out all they can about where the shipwreck was, uh, sorry, where the vessel was sailing, um, when it was last sighted, what might have happened on board, and then they do surveying to try and find it. Um, That might be side scan sonar surveying or magnetometer um, surveying or visual surveys by just diving. Um, an awful lot um, and eventually find material underwater related to the to the shipwreck so um, yeah both require a lot of research but whether it comes at the start or later is um, the main difference and why is it important to preserve maritime archaeology it's not a site you can visit like you can visit like for example a castle on land so why is it important I think it's in my mind it's important because you get such a different preservation on these sites and there's information we can research on these sites that you just can't on land because of that um the anaerobic condition a lot of them reach um so there's that sort of historic research archaeological reasons for preserving it but it's also just fantastic for tourism and diving i mean these sites give nutrients to the seabed and the the ecosystem and create like a micro 
ecosystem in themselves becoming artificial reefs so they, they're great for for diving it, it's a lot harder than just walking across the site on land but we do have uh, a lot of active divers in in australia that can access these sites and enjoy them um, and it's also important for the environment like i said it's giving nutrients and creating artificial reefs and supporting um marine life um and and those in turn help to protect the shipwrecks as well so it's always a good thing in our mind um yeah they do add something to the to the environment too and is it import like is it different uh the preservation of a shipwreck once it becomes a habitat for a fish or like is it just a natural process where you have a shipwreck it becomes a reef of sorts and you just preserve it yeah we generally do prefer if it has marine life growing on it i mean shipwrecks are in a slow state of deterioration that we can't stop what we do is try and slow that down as much as we can um, and when there is marine life on a site it actually stabilizes the site so if there's um say seagrass which i know um griff is uh, very interested in um that helps to stabilize sort of sand cover on the site and preserve the materials or if there's corals and um, sponges that helps to stabilize the material and give a bit of a physical barrier to wave action or sand abrasion or the other things that um can impact a site so um when there is marine growth it's it's great we try and leave all of that intact and preserve it in place not all sites have that though there are other ways of preserving those sites to us the historic value is is you know still a consideration yeah different options depending on on how that shipwrecks looking and, and what else is there to help protect the site how come that so you're saying there's some sites that have a lot of marine life growing on it and others that don't as much why is that it's mostly because of the other Uh, forces at work on that site so there might be really strong currents um, that that um, uh, sort of sponges and corals might struggle to survive in um, or there might be a lot of sand abrasion or the site might be completely covered in sand in which case you know things like seagrass can help to stabilize the sand cover but the site itself doesn't have anything growing on it because underwater under sediment you reach a kind of anaerobic situation um, which Uh, organics don't survive well organic marine life doesn't survive very well in it's almost like if you think about shipwrecks being in sort of the arctic or you know the canadian lakes where it's freezing cold it's that kind of situation but under sand and there's things like torito worms uh, which eat through timber and those things don't survive under a certain amount of burial either so a lot of our sites are, are best preserved under sand where things don't grow but if they are going to be exposed then it's good to have things like sponges growing on them to keep them stable when you were talking about how these sites are actually preserved what methods are you guys using to preserve them and with that is, is any material taken to the surface to be researched or is it better to just leave the shipwrecks where they are because of this better environment underwater It's definitely better underwater because when you bring waterlogged and sort of salt-infused artifacts to the surface, it requires a lot of expensive conservation to protect that material. Um, even glass and ceramics absorb salts, even iron absorbs salts. And if that's allowed to dry, the salts crystallize and will crack the material. Um, and you might not see this in one generation, but you'll definitely see it in two or three generations. And we look to preserve things a lot longer than that. So um, we love excavating. That's where we get a lot of our research, but we only do that in really 
almost extreme circumstances where there's no other option, you know, if, if something's being built right through the centre of it or something like that, because preserving it underwater is much more um, available to us than onshore conservation. But other ways of protecting things, what we call in situ, so on site, is through things like sandbagging, where you're artificially burying a shipwreck. Mm. There has been experimentation with seagrass as well. Um, unfortunately, it was fake seagrass, but that helps to bury a shipwreck and keep the site stable as well. Um, we also do things, say for iron wrecks that are corroding at a really rapid rate, we'll attach things called anodes, which are made of zinc and will corrode preferentially to the iron to try and keep that iron intact as long as possible. There's also other physical ways to try and protect wrecks too, but they're, they're the main ways we try and protect things in situ. It sounds like there's a massive trait of consideration there because as you say it's best conserved if it's covered in sand but then no one can actually see and enjoy it right and it's hard to research it as well so that sounds like a big discussion to be had um, for each side like oh what do we do with it do we do everything to preserve it um, but then it might not be accessible for anyone and no one really can enjoy it or do we make it accessible but then take into account that it might uh, deteriorate yeah absolutely there is a lot that goes into those decisions and um, typically it comes down to how fragile the material is um, so a lot of our shipwrecks we prefer divers to be able to access them we prefer them to be exposed if they're stable enough for that it's only very few sites of high archaeological value and high sensitivity um, that might be buried for their protection um, but out of all the shipwrecks in australia that might be you know 0.0 5% of them that are purposefully buried like that. So um, definitely engaging the public and engaging divers is um, our, our preference if it's possible. Cool. That sounds really interesting. And in the case of a shipwreck going down, and I imagine that in these catastrophic scenarios where ships have sank or airplanes have crashed, what happens if you come across like human remains while investigating a site? That's a very tricky one. I have to say it hasn't happened to me yet, um, but in the first port of call, you'd be calling the police mm -hmm. and I'm sure they'd be calling a coroner. Um, I think especially for sort of World War II era um, shipwrecks or aircraft wrecks, there is a possibility of repatriating those remains to the families or to the uh, nation that they came from. That means, um, so, sorry to interrupt, Danielle, so that means um, there would even be a coroner um, ex like investigation even if it's a World War II shipwreck. So it doesn't matter how old it is, if, there's, if there are human remains, it will be investigated in terms of well, probably not crime, who did the crime, but um, yeah, that is, that's fascinating. Yeah, I think you definitely want to be sure it is uh, our, uh, human remains that went down with the vessel and not something that's, you know, more modern and been placed on the side. I think that's probably the main concern. Um, but yeah, and usually if we do find human remains, um, sort of that went down with the shipwreck, say, um, there's a, a, a really great opportunity to bring the relations, if they're still mm. around, some some peace. And I, I know that in recent history that has happened a couple of times and there's been an opportunity for memorial services and, uh, yeah, a lot of peace to bring to those families and answers in finding those remains. So very sensitive, of course, mm. but it's usually... Yeah, a good thing to find those remains. 
Thank you for sharing that. But this sounds like one of the most interesting and like mixed bag careers I've ever heard of, where it's like a mix of being working underwater in marine environments with the environment and doing the research, but then also learning so much about history. And I was just wondering how you actually got into this career path. It's definitely a mixed bag. That's a good word for it. Um, and it involves a lot of different sciences. You know, we do have um, a huge opportunity for those um, multidisciplinary research type opportunities. I got into it through volunteering at um, the Shipwreck Museum in Fremantle in Western Australia. That's where I grew up over in WA. So I, I didn't really know what major I wanted to get into or, or what postgraduate degree. So I did some volunteer work there and I was just photographing items from the Batavia shipwreck, um, which is one of those early shipwrecks over in WA. And I was, you know, handling silver coins and glassware and pieces of rope and sail and leather. And it was the most magical thing. And I knew that I just had to, you know, learn, learn more about this and get into it. And it wasn't until my um, master's degree that I realized maritime archaeology includes so much more than just timber shipwrecks. Um, and I really got into kind of the World War II iron built type stuff. And yeah, it's, it's a continuous learning journey because we do cross over with so many sciences and there's so many sub-disciplines within maritime archaeology. It's really endless. There's, you know, there's a bit for everyone, I like to think. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds really, really awesome. And could you tell us a bit about the position you're in now and what your day-to-day might look like? Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm the Senior Maritime Archaeologist with Heritage Victoria, which is the government agency. We operate under the Victorian Heritage Act, but we also have delegated responsibilities from the Commonwealth under the Commonwealth Underwater Cultural Heritage Act. So my day-to-day job involves advising developers and reviewing reports, um, meeting with community groups. I love working with community groups. Their passion is just always so inspiring. Um, I do get to do a bit of diving for work, assessing risks to shipwrecks and writing up inspection reports. I talk with the other people in my role around the country, so in the other states, and I work with the Commonwealth team as well. I record artifacts uh, that people have raised and given to us. A lot of managing equipment, you know, all that dive equipment where we have a boat and a truck um, and a lot of safety paperwork. Um, and I get to give some talks and lectures as well and write permits. And yeah, it, it's really quite a, a mixed bag of things. How often do you actually get to dive and go down to check out the shipwrecks? We try and get down at least once a month, more often if we can. Um, but of course, it's quite weather dependent and it needs to squeeze in around all our other responsibilities too. So um, yeah, we try and do once a month. And you've mentioned that uh, one part of your job is dealing with people finding some artifacts. So how mm. often do like people from the general public find artifacts and what should you do when you find one? Oh, um, so more recently, it's only every sort of few months that people report something to us. And usually it's something they've seen in the beach. So we can provide advice to kind of leave it where it is. And a lot of the other artifacts we get at the moment is from before were taken from shipwrecks before the legislation was in place. And unfortunately, a lot of those people are now passing on and and giving their family their collections and their family is handing that over to us. So there's some 
disparity there on where these artifacts are coming from but it is illegal to take anything from a shipwreck site um it's illegal to disturb a shipwreck in any way um so if anyone does find anything on a site now the best thing is to leave it in place take photos get a position for it and report it either to the commonwealth or to uh, the state government heritage branch and they'll give you advice on what to do because um, as we've as we've discussed, raising things takes a lot of work in conservation after. So we prefer to leave things underwater if we can. But yeah, if you if if you didn't know about the the laws and you have taken something from a shipwreck, that's okay. Um, just report it to uh, your state's organisation, and they'll walk you through the process of legally becoming a custodian to hold on to that wreck. Um, our priority is always finding out the information, uh, not slapping wrists. So we're very community minded and, and like to help people in engaging with their heritage. Is looting still an issue? Like, do you get, do you have to deal with that? That there are actually people on purpose going to shipwrecks and trying to find stuff that they can sell and make money with? Or is this a thing yeah. of the past? It's less of a thing now, but it still definitely does happen. And in Victoria, there was quite an unfortunate incident in 2017, 2018. Um, there was a, a, a wreck discovered called Alert in the previous years. And it's quite a deep wreck. It's only accessible to those kind of um, deep divers at you know, 70, 80 metres. Um, and there was a community group that was monitoring the site. And then one day they dived the wreck and a lot of the artifacts had just been stolen. Um, and this would have been quite a large effort by a team of divers to take things from alert. And we're still looking for information on about anyone who knows anything about those artifacts or who was involved in that. Um, so that was probably the biggest looting event in recent times, but early on as well, obviously before the legislation existed, there were a lot of people taking things from shipwrecks too. Wow, it sounds like that's a huge effort to um, get artifacts off a shipwreck diving down 70, 80 meters with all your tech dive gear. Feels like they almost deserve it then. No, of course not. But it's like, wow, like you put effort into this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, that, I mean, I can't even imagine, you know, running an operation that big. They must have been very experienced deep divers um, to lift the, the amount of artifacts that they did so yeah there's only going to be a, a handful of people capable of that really well if there was members of the community that wanted to get involved with shipwrecks help out how could a member of the community do that well we always need eyes and ears around the coast the easiest way to get involved is just to contact your kind of local groups or state government group and um, ask to monitor sites um, so you can do repeat visits to shipwrecks and provide photos or videos um, just so that the archaeologists can see how the site's changing and assess the risks impacting that site um, without them having to go to the wreck site. Um, in Victoria, we have a Maritime Heritage at Risk program and we do have like a pro forma template we can give to any divers who are interested in taking part that way. Um, but yeah, there's, there's often volunteer opportunities to get involved. There is the Australasian Institute for Maritime Archaeology as well, which is a sort of nationwide group of professionals, but also people in the public who are just interested and they can get involved with that. Um, or there are some state-based groups as well, particularly in Victoria and Western Australia um, that are very active. 
too. So um, yeah, there's, there's a few ways or, or contact your museum. Um, they might have opportunities for you as well. Yeah, there's a number of ways to kind of get involved, whether you're a diver or not. Daniel, if you could give one piece of advice to young scientists who are aspiring to find a career that you seem to enjoy as much as you do, what would it be? Oh, one piece of advice. Um, I think the easiest way to get involved is to get involved with your um, local organisations like I just mentioned, um, and also volunteer. I know we, we don't really like having to suggest volunteering to, to young scientists, but it's a great way for building experience, for networking, for being exposed to parts of maritime archaeology that um, you might not know about yet, um, and finding your kind of niche in the industry. I think that's really important. So uh, yeah, organisations and volunteering. So, Danielle, you've also previously worked as a consultant for offshore wind farm projects. Could you tell us a bit about this work? Yeah, that was it was really interesting. And obviously, it's something that's quite pertinent for Australia in the coming years, too. When I worked in the UK, I, I didn't even know that offshore wind farms was really a thing that it uh, crossed over with archaeology. But I was a manager there helping with developers who were developing offshore wind farms and had to go through different phases of archaeological assessment and of course part of that was to do with the submerged landscape like i mentioned earlier um, and so there were different aspects of that like um, side scan sonar and magnetometer ground penetrating radar um, but also doing borehole boring to get samples of the seabed and these were taken for like engineering purposes but they're also really interesting to our geoarchaeologists who were putting together like a landscape characterization and within those cores you might find things like peat layers um, which is like compressed i guess riverine kind of grasses that can preserve artifact material but can also preserve insects and pollen and and things like that to to really study the environment you know in in centuries ago and now that we're seeing offshore wind farms brought to australia it's those kinds of investigations and sciences we're going to need to almost develop in our country and develop the expertise because there hasn't really been much of a need for that and offshore wind farms are huge uh, so our capacity for being able to assess all those cores and all that data is going to grow massively um, and yeah now I've experienced just a few years of that in the UK and understanding how those assessments happen so now having to bring that to Australia that experience is proving quite useful. Does that mean that, so it sounds like those offshore wind farms, when they're built or before they're actually built, and you as a maritime or marine archaeologist come in to assess if there's any anything valuable or anything worth protecting in the ground, it sounds like that um, are the companies that are building the wind farms, do they have to pay then for your research basically on the site? Yes, that's correct. It's almost like doing a, a preliminary assessment to avoid impacts. So by putting together those landscape characterizations, they could identify areas of the landscape, kind of like hotspots that might contain archaeological sites or archaeological material. And then the developers can plan their um, wind farm and you know, the location of turbines and cables around those hotspots to minimize impact. But of course, that's not always achievable. Sometimes they need to go through areas that might have archaeological sensitivity. And then the archaeologists can say, well, to mitigate that impact, we want to do more research. So if you're going to do more 
core coring, we want cores in this area and this area and this area and a more detailed analysis by someone like a geoarchaeologist to gain information about the landscape that previously you know, might not be possible to investigate. Um, so, yeah, generally in the UK, any impacts, you have that avoidance option um, as the first thing, but then also mitigation by research. Um, and it might be possible that that happens in Australia as well. Of course, the main difference is in the UK, you're not dealing with an alive culture. Um, so there's so much opportunity for First Nations groups and Aboriginal groups and um, traditional owners to have a say in how the landscape that they have stories connected to is managed with offshore wind farms, like areas that should be avoided and areas where they'd like to do more intensive research. And how do you discover hotspot areas for archaeological sites? It seems to me that the ocean is pretty uniform. So how do you know where uh, the hot hotspots are found? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there might be things offshore like ancient coastlines or riverine channels, because of course we need fresh water to live. So usually um, so sites might align with freshwater channels like ancient riverine channels, or there might be landscapes you can still see underwater like cave systems for protection. Yeah, things like that that might be identifiable in that landscape picture where people would have congregated and they do have a sort of modeling system they use on land uh, at least in victoria for predicting where aboriginal sites may be based on the landscape so it's kind of an extension of that out underwater but then taking into account uh, rising sea levels and how that might have impacted sites as well i wonder how much of a source of conflict this whole topic is like in the uk especially but i'm sure this would be an issue in Australia as well. Um, like, obviously, there's a bit of a, yeah, conf there are conflicting interests, right? Like, the company wants to build an offshore wind farm is interested to build this offshore wind farm as quickly as possible and as cheaply as possible. And then you, as a archaeologist, might find some artifacts and some, um, yeah, some yeah historic sites that need protection which makes the whole project much more expensive um mm. is that can that be a big issue and point of discussion or is it your experience that it's this goes fairly smoothly usually well it, it can go quite smoothly if the developers undertake sort of desktop assessments very early on uh, where there's still a chance for them to adjust the location of things. Um, but if they don't do those assessments in advance, and those assessments can be done quite cheaply, really, the, the geoarchaeology assessments, looking at boreholes and putting together those landscape characterizations, all the information is being obtained for other aspects of research anyway, like engineering. So you're just piggybacking really off um, research that's already happened and just getting it interpreted in a different way. Um, so it can happen quite cheaply. The most expensive thing is if they don't do those assessments and then try build a cable and it's going straight through, say, a shipwreck, and suddenly you need to excavate an entire shipwreck at 40 meters depth, that becomes astronomically expensive. Um, but if you knew of that shipwreck in advance, you could just avoid it. Um, we don't really know quite yet how that's going to happen with submerged Aboriginal sites and landscapes because it hasn't been done yet in Australia, really. 
Um, but I think the theory still applies where if you do your research in advance while you're still designing, um, there is a lot more opportunity for much cheaper uh, solutions in just avoiding areas than later down the track. If you find them during construction, then then you've got a very expensive issue. Sounds like everything in life, if you do your homework, then things will go much smoother than if you don't. If you don't. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, Danielle, just to go back a few steps, for an offshore wind farm, obviously for one on land, I'm picturing these massive turbines on like green hills, but what do they logistically actually look like on the ocean? Like if there's no land body to attach them to, how are they built and how do they look? Offshore wind farms look a lot like the ones you might see on land on a green hill, except they are much, much bigger. Um, and usually the wind farms can have, say, up to 100 turbines, so much more than you have on land. Um, and that requires a lot of port infrastructure and a lot of building, which we're still developing in Australia as well. So, yeah, the logistics of getting them out there and there's there's a number of different ways of sort of anchoring systems um, to, to anchor them to the seabed. But, yeah, much, much bigger. The benefit then though is that they can generate a lot more power mm. than ones on land um so for example uh one of the first wind farms proposed off victoria at least uh is star of the south and the generation capacity of that is about half of the entire renewable gen energy generation in the whole state of victoria wow from one wind farm um and at the moment we have eight proposed off victoria at least so you know you can see how um there is huge benefit uh financially and for the environment you could say building offshore rather than onshore but yeah it does take a lot of different resourcing um and infrastructure to achieve and maybe a more general question do you see any effects of climate change on shipwrecks or on, or on the sites you study yes that hasn't been studied over time to any detailed extent yet, but we are very conscious of it. I think rising temperatures, of course, affects the oceans and the you know diversity and marine life in such a big way. And that's a huge part of what protects shipwrecks. So um, if you have warmer environments, there might be more um, Dorito worms and things that eat away at the shipwreck material, um, but you might also be losing some of those protective um, marine that protective marine growth as well and of course changing salinity and changing ph and all of that affects heritage fabric underwater as it does the environment too and eroding coastlines we have um, shipwrecks in the intertidal zone that are being exposed more now than they have been before because of more storm action and and, and wave action at those sites so as a general observation yes and we're very curious and keen for some longer term studies to gather data on that and it's one of those opportunities for cross-disciplinary research um, but as so far nothing has been focused specifically on shipwrecks. That is fascinating. And overall, your job sounds so multifaceted and variable. And what is your, the favorite thing about your job for you? Oh, uh, oh God, I, I love the diversity of work. Uh, definitely, as you can probably tell, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. But um, kind of my favorite things are working with community groups, which I think I mentioned earlier, but they're so passionate and engaged in their heritage. And that's such an inspiration for us who work in this industry to see 
uh, people in the community really advocating for the heritage in their backyard, uh, whether that's a specific like regional group or a specific shipwreck group, um, but also just the the, the larger um, associations around Australia that support the industry and support our research. They're, they're just fantastic to get involved in and have, have a community of like-minded people. Um, but yeah, also just diving shipwrecks. Like I said, I'm not much of a diver. Don't really enjoy that, you know, as a general thing, but being on shipwrecks and connecting with history is just so evoking. Um, I really love that part of my job too. I have one more quick question um, about the wind farms. It mm. sounds like it sounds like a great thing because, um, well, they, as you said, they produce a lot of electricity and they're not in anyone's way. No one can complain, oh, they're so ugly because they're offshore. Um, but I did hear a few stories, nothing too specific, but I heard a few stories that they can have like a bit of an impact in terms of disturbing marine life. I know this is not mm. your not your area of expertise at all but um do you have can you comment on that a little bit i'm just curious what other um yeah what considerations you have to take into account when building those yeah i don't know specifics but i can say that as part of the kind of commonwealth uh there's a process under the environmental protection and biodiversity conservation act where a lot of these different impacts are assessed in detail. So I sit on uh, these technical reference groups where all different uh, organizations representing all different types of impacts sit uh, and put our brains together and, and look over reports and, and guide the proponent in how to assess these properly. Um, and there's definitely people there that uh, speak for marine mammals and birds and noise and vibration effects. Um, and fishing and uh, sort of uh, aquatic marine life, all sorts of things are assessed uh, in detail and the mitigation measures are um, put forward to these different sort of government agency groups and, and assessed. So it's, it's all done in a lot of detail by experts Although, yeah, as you say, it's not my area of expertise, so I can't talk to specifics on how that's being mitigated. But I know the offshore wind farms actively think of those concerns as they're designing these and do consider how they're installing the turbines and what the vibration from that might affect and what the noise might impact and whales and migration and all sorts of things are considered in, in the design. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Danielle. It's been really interesting to hear about all your work and the different kind of work you get up to and how it just sounds really amazing, honestly. So thank you very thank much you for coming so on. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for listening. This has been Boiling Point. We'll be back next week with a new science story. Thank you very much for listening.